everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Jakob Dweck about his book, Dissident Rabbi, The Life of Jacob Sasportes. Jakob Dweck is Professor of History and Program in Judaic Studies at Princeton University. Jakob Dweck, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Before we begin talking about your new book, tell us a little bit about yourself. I teach history at Princeton University, where I've been teaching for the last uh, 11 and a half years. And for um, the most of that time, I've been working on this book about Jacob Sasportas. And about half of the book was actually written in the Van Leer Institute um, when I had a year of sabbatical in 2016, 2017, and was in Jerusalem working in the Polanski Library and uh, at the Van Leer Institute. Ah, I didn't know that. So, so you've come full circle. Welcome back. <laughs> in, in this post-truth era, the life of Jacob supports us is instructive as a model of the value of doubt based on reason. But let's start at the beginning. Give us the context, when and where, and what was going on in the world in which the sport has lived. The world in which Sasportas lived was profoundly uncertain in many ways and very certain in other ways. Um, we'll start with the uncertainty. There was um, political uncertainty. There was there were plagues. There were um, fires that had uh, um, a huge effect on his life, but also on the life of the people who lived around him. He There was a huge amount of mobility um, that um, is something that uh, would continue for many centuries. and But there were also certainties that I think are very different from the time that, we, that which we live in. I think the, the social hierarchy was considerably more fixed um, than uh, the social hierarchy that um, the world in which we live in. And one of the things that um, one can see in Sasportas and through his life is a, a the 17th century as a as a as a period in tremendous flux. Um, you have someone who comes from a family of rabbis and translators in North Africa, and who had been trained from a very young age to be a Talmudist and a, a jurist, and who had a considerable amount of deference from the people with whom he lived in North Africa. Um, up until basically middle, what we would think of as middle age, and then he is he forced to leave North Africa in circumstances that we still don't really know, um, and he spends the next half century in the uh, urban centers of northwestern Europe, where there is a Sephardic, where there are Sephardic um, settlements, and there is a huge conflict that occurs because he comes to these. These, these settlements of Jews, and he he assumes that they will defer to him because of his knowledge and his learning and his aristocratic lineage. And they want him to work for him, or they don't want him there at all. And that provides a huge amount of conflict within the Jewish, um, within the Jewish world. If you zoom out a little bit, there's a huge amount of political uncertainty. The 17th century is a period of crisis, um, and historians have been thinking about the 17th century as a period of crisis for, at this point, over 70, 80 years. And there are wars that are going on. There are fires that are going on. There are plagues that are going on. And it's not surprising that in this period, uh, you have a messiah, uh, a rabbi who is hailed by people around him as the messiah, and that Jews all around believe in him as the Messiah. 
And they are really excited about this and they are really hopeful. Well, given the the context of the crises of the 17th century, what was the relationship between Christianity and Judaism at at that time? It's a very good question, Renee. Uh, I think that, of course, historians love to say, well, it depends where and when, and it depends which Christianity, which Judaism. I think one can say that uh, in broad strokes that... um, that if we're if we are situated within Europe, the Jews are an alienated minority. Um, they are necessary for, as witnesses for the Christian truth, and they are also incredibly useful as merchants and as um, um, uh, um, agents of liquidity in the world of mercantilism. I also think it's a huge error to think of the relationship between Judaism and Christianity in the abstract, as if um, Jews and Christians sometimes fight, but they also sometimes get along with one another. Um, in the particular places that Sasportas lived in Western Europe, um, London, Amsterdam, Hamburg, and Livorno, Jews are allowed to live with um, relative, um, uh, relatively undisturbed. Um, and I think that um, enables a certain kind of largesse on the part of the Jews within their own purview. Aha. Uh-huh. So we have a Jewish community living relatively undisturbed um, in Europe during the 17th century, a period of crises from many points of view. And in that context arose Shabtai Tzvi, the false messiah um, of the Jews, who was widely embraced by both the ordinary people, the masses of Jews, and the learned people, the rabbis. Uh, why? why? Why did that happen? And why was that such crisis? Two linguistic points of of quibbling, um, but um, everything you're saying is, is is correct. Except I just I want to register my protest. Um, I don't know that I would use the word community. I think community implies a certain voluntarism to it and a certain opting in on the part of people who participate in it. And I think one of the things I was trying to say earlier is that in the 17th century the hierarchies are somewhat more fixed than they are now. It's Jews don't really have a choice whether or not to be part of the quote-unquote Jewish community in the places that they live. Um, They pay taxes as a group. Um, The discipline and the order is rigidly enforced from above. Um, so that would that would be one thing. I think settlement might be a better word. Um, community tends to sort of imply voluntarism, as if they're all liberals from the United States in the post-war period, which I think is is very uh, it can be very misleading. The second issue is about whether or not Shabtai Tzvi is the false messiah. I think prior to his conversion to Islam in 1666. I don't, it's not clear to me that he's the false messiah. Um, what, I, what I mean to be saying by this is that there's a very long period of about 16 months when to be a Jew in this period between 1665 and 1666 meant to believe that Shabtai Tzvi was the fulfillment of the messianic promise from the Bible as interpreted by the rabbis through the Middle Ages. And then once he converts to Islam at the behest of the Ottoman Sultan in September of 1666, 
then that hope comes crashing down. And then he joins a long list of false messiahs. But I think it's important to hold on to this period of about 16 months when Jews the world over believed that he was the messiah and they didn't think that he was the false messiah. And that is that is what um, I think so much of this conflict is about because what Sasportas is not willing to do is to say, okay, I'm done with the messianic idea all messiahs are false, um, and um, I'm just going to be a renegade and, and 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 someone who says no to everything. He believes in the messiah. Sasportis believes in the messianic promise, but he doesn't believe in Shabtai Tzvi, and that's where the point of contention is. If you know, if you can understand the sort of difference between saying I'm going to wash my hands of the whole idea of the messiah versus no, 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 I believe in the messiah as promised by the prophet Isaiah, as interpreted by Maimonides, but I don't think that Shabtai Tzvi is the fulfillment of those ideas. And Sasportas held that position even during the 16 months when Jews worldwide thought Shabtai Tzvi was in fact the messiah. Is that right? Oh, Renee, that that is a great question. <laughs> um, you, you, uh, that is a really, really great question. So, I think this is something that we have to really think about very carefully. Which is, Sasportas, I think in the beginning was quite receptive to the possibility that Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah. I mean, here you have a rabbi who's living in Hamburg at the time, but who knows through his rabbinic network many of the his colleagues who live elsewhere in the Ottoman Empire or in North Africa or elsewhere in Europe. And he seems to have reports that they believe that the Messiah has come. And his initial response is cautious, guarded optimism. But then as the reports continue to snowball and as certain things start to happen, then his guarded optimism turns into cautious skepticism and finally into absolute rebuke. And I think if we think about it temporally, this happens over the course of many months. And I think some of the crucial litmus tests for Sasportas is the fact that the rabbinate um, in Jerusalem doesn't seem, he doesn't seem to have reports that they have confirmed that Shabtai Tzvi is the Messiah. And that I think he's very, he's very concerned about. Some rabbis in certain places in the Ottoman Empire, believe that Shabtai Tzvi is the Messiah, but he doesn't have a sort of um, confirmed reports from his colleagues in Jerusalem. But I think probably the most decisive thing is that fast, the traditional Jewish fast days, which had been observed as days of mourning for the destruction of the temple, start to be observed as days of celebration of the arrival of the Messiah. So the 10th of Tevet, and the 9th of Av, the 10th of Tevet, which occurs in the winter, and the 9th of Av, which occurs in the summer, these are turned by believers in Shabtai Tzvi into public Jewish holidays. And this is an instance where you can't have it both ways. Either you fast, because this is a day of mourning, or you eat um, and you drink and you are merry, because this is a day of celebration for the arrival of the Messiah. And once that happens, Sasporta starts to see, okay, these believers in Shabtai Tzvi are breaking the law. And once you have this confrontation between the utopia of the, Messi- of the Messiah with the law, and the utopia of the Messiah starts to win out without proof positive that the Messiah is a- has actually arrived, then Sasporta starts to oppose Shabtai Tzvi, well before the conversion um, to Islam in 1666. So... Uh, y- what you're describing now is a man who is perhaps more of a skeptic and a uh, conservative thinker 
than someone who is um, rebellious against the establishment. Would that be right? Absolutely. I think not only he he's he's a he's a he's a skeptic and he's a learned skeptic. He draws on the sources within the Jewish tradition to justify his skepticism. And not only that, he I don't see him as rebelling against the establishment. I see him chafing at the fact that he is not part of the establishment. Uh-huh. That's yeah. that's the that's the rub, right? Sasportas thinks that he should be um, the the rabbi to whom people um, turn to for their advice, and in, instead he is ignored. Because one of the things that one has to understand is that in Amsterdam and in Hamburg and in Livorno and in London, you have a group of Jews who had been raised as Catholics or who had been raised by their or whose grandparents or whose parents had been raised as Catholics in the Iberian Peninsula, in Portugal and in Spain, and who then leave Portugal and Spain and migrate northwards to the Protestant north and reconvert to the Judaism of their ancestors. And they're very learned men and women. Many of them have attended university in Spain. Many of them have um, multiple languages. Many of them have learned professions, but they are relatively ignorant of Judaism. And so what they do is they bring in a huge number of rabbis from abroad to educate them as to the fundamentals of their tradition. And these rabbis are, they're paid employees. And so what, when there's a fissure in this in these Portuguese Jewish settlements between the learned elites and the um, oligarchic merchants. Now, most of the time, this fissure is not exposed, right? Yeah. The the rab the rabbinate and the merchants get along with one another. But at moments of crisis, you can start to see the fissures emerging much much more clearly. And Sasportas did not have an official position in 1665 when he was living in Hamburg. He's there as a private um, Jew. Um, he's receiving charity from the Amsterdam um, Portuguese Jews who send it to him in Hamburg. And it took a certain amount of courage for him to criticize his paymasters in their belief in the Messiah and to encourage them to doubt while they are relatively certain that the Messiah has arrived. Well, you 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 paint a, a wonderful portrait, a very clear living portrait of Sasportes. Uh, he's a refugee. He's a wanderer. He's a man who struggled to make a living. He wasn't accepted by his peers, despite his learning, his scholarship. So how did he express his opposition to the uh, Sabbatean movement? This is a really wonderful question, Renee. He expressed his opposition to the Sabbatean movement in writing. Um, and he expressed it in literary Hebrew written in rabbinic idiom in letters that he sent to his colleagues throughout the Sephardic diaspora, in which he castigated them for their belief in Shabtai Tzvi and for their certainty when he should be doubtful. And here we, we, we come to something a little, uh, slightly even more complicated, which is that these, the, the, what was a, one has to ask oneself, what was a letter in the middle of the 17th century? It wasn't an email. Um, it wasn't something right. that you received right away. Um, it was something that took between several weeks and possibly several months to receive. And moreover, the letter was a somewhat public document. And I hesitate to use the word public because it may not actually be so precise. But it's pretty clear from Sasportas' letters 
that he anticipated that there would be more than one reader to each of his letters. That when he was setting, sending a letter to his colleague, let's say, Isaac Abouab de Fonseca in Amsterdam, he imagined that a lot of people would be reading this letter, not only one person. And moreover, one has to think that the way the news about Shabtai's fee spread was also through letters. Um, it was through letters coming from the Ottoman Empire that were publicly declaimed in the synagogue. Um, so Sasportas would write to his colleagues, and he would also preserve his letters and his colleagues' letters. And then, this is where I think things get very, very complicated and very tricky. After Shabtai Tzvi converts to Islam in 1666, Sasportas doesn't really care so much about Shabtai Tzvi. What he cares about is the rabbinate. And so he continues to fight with his colleagues about all sorts of issues, but he doesn't fight with them about Shabtai Tzvi. And he keeps his letters about Shabtai Tzvi and their letters to him in his drawer, and he doesn't print them. And they don't appear in print until the middle of the 18th century, and even then only in a severely truncated version. And they only appear in their sort of full glory and the complete version in the middle of the 20th century. And so I think that one of the things is that Sasportas keeps um, his doubts not quite to himself, but also not so public, um, if you understand that um, we're dealing with sort of some kind of somewhere, some netherworld between public and private in the middle of the 17th century. And his doubts or opposition were not just about Shabtai Tzvi. It was broader than that. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Uh, I th- absolutely. I think, I think that he's, what his doubt is, is about the place of the law within Jewish society. His colleagues and his, his paymasters want him to have a very narrow purview, which is, okay, is this chicken that was slaughtered properly, is it, is it slaughtered properly or is it not? Is this kosher or not? Is this bill of divorce that has been issued in a particular time and place, is it um, an authorized bill of divorce? And for Sesport, that's the law is a much broader category. It's how does one live a life? Uh-huh. Um, and so there's a real struggle for power between him and not only his colleagues, but also the merchant paymasters for whom he's working. Now, psychologists use words like oppositional uh, to describe someone who is always oppositional. With If everyone says yes, he says no. Uh, politicians prefer to call it uh, contrarian. Now, would you say that describes Sasporta's personality because of his particular circumstance and who he was? Or is it really more theoretical for him? It's a really, it's a spectacular question, Renee. I'm going to try to answer it obliquely. I have been reading this man's mail for the past 10 10 years. Um, I have been trying to reconstruct his life by following his name in various times and places in the archives of public collections um, in which it could be found. I think that I'm comfortable saying that Sesportis was not an easy man. Um, and that he was not someone who um, was willing to concede his due um, or willing to sort of uh, um, renege on um, the, 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 the respect that he thought was uh, that he thought should be given to someone of his position, of his learning and of his lineage. The Hebrew word is the word kavod, which appears again and again in his, both his, his writings and writings about him. 
But I think at the same time, it would be reductive in the worst possible sense to to say that this is simply about personality. Um, because I think that would obscure the genuine issues that were at hand. And these, these issues are the place of the law in Jewish society. Who should lead? Should the people lead or should the, should the learned rabbi lead? Which books are authoritative, right? Um, should right. one turn to Maimonides or should one turn to another work? Um, I think part of what the fight between him and his colleagues is about is the bookshelf, right? Which books are determinative? And then part of what the fight is about is do one, does one follow books at all or does one follow the authenticity of one's own experience? Because one of the things that believers in Shabtai Tzvi had on their, at their, to, to, to their part of their argument was we believe that the Messiah has come. We have seen the prophet. Nathan of Gaza, we have seen the Messiah perform miracles. We don't really care what the books say. And not only that, we also can cite Maimonides to, to prove our, our position. And that was what I meant beforehand, why after Shabtai Tzvi converts, Sasports is not so interested in, 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 in Sabatianism or rooting out quote-unquote heresy. What he is interested, though, is the correct reading of Maimonides. Right, that's still a fight that he's willing to have for the next thirty years. He dies in sixteen ninety eight, and he continues to fight for the next thirty years. Well, you you have a wonderful paragraph uh, on page twenty three that uh, that refers to his complexity as a person. I, I don't know if you. I didn't tell you to have the book with you. Do you? I, do you have it? Or, I don't, okay. but uh, I but I spent enough time with the book that I <laughs> I, I I if you refresh my memory, I can. Um, I, I'll, re- I I'll can... read it for our uh, listeners. Uh, Sesportes did not conform to the series of oppositions that undergird the intellectual edifice of modern scholarship. He was both a halachist and a kabbalist, a conservative and a radical, a critic of the rabbinate and the instantiation of its ideals. He was an author obsessed with his own status who simultaneously had complete contempt for contemporary conventions of publication. I just love that paragraph. (laughs) Someone with complete contempt for contemporary conventions of publication. Yes. Well, yeah. I think I I would stand by that paragraph in the sense that I, for a very, very long time, um, I've been working on this book for about 10 years, and I would say for probably the first four or five years, I was trying to resolve in my mind those contradictions, right, to hold them up as as only a halachist. Um, and then I realized that it doesn't actually make sense according to the categories that 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 he had himself. I mean, one of the in when he publishes um, a uh, eulogy for someone who dies at a very young age, the um, the title page of the the of the eulogy describes Sasportas um, as a Kabbalist and and a halachist. Chokeru mekuba. I'm sorry. It, it's uh, I believe it's. Um, uh, I, I forget the the Hebrew, which is I believe reproduced in the book, um, but. when he holds up both Maimonides and the Zohar as sources against which um, he uses uh, um, to to combat the Sabatians. And I think um, this notion of him as a Chacham 
and Umekubala, a, a sage and, and a Kabbalist, was very hard for me to figure out in the, the first five years of working on this project until I realized I'm actually not going to try to resolve this distinction because he didn't have this distinction. That was one piece of it. The other piece of it is the relationship between print and um, uh, and, and, and manuscript circulation or to print or not to print. By the middle of the 17th century, print is not new, Rene. Right. I mean, people have been printing books for well over two centuries, and Jews have been printing, or not quite two centuries, but almost two centuries, and Jews have been printing books for a very long time. So Sports has worked in a printing house. He was very well aware of the power of the printed book. Moreover, he tells us at various points in his writings that he wants to print a commentary on the Mishnah, um, and that he wants to bring a lot of his own writings in to, to publication. But he doesn't. Because basically, at the end of his life, very little had appeared in print. Um, only 40 years after his death, or almost 40 years after his his death, uh, do his responsa, uh, a book called Ohel Yaakov, appear, and only then because his son pays for their publication, which is a fairly standard practice in the early modern yes. world. Um, and I, I think trying not to resolve these um, the contradictions was one way forward, and to observe them so that... Um, trying to see someone um, in the round um, to the best of one's ability. Um, I think some trying to see someone in the round who lived three centuries ago is very difficult, but that, that just because it's difficult doesn't mean we should give up the pursuit of trying. But after spending so much time with him, how do you relate to or empathize with or see his complexity in the round? How do you do that? I think that um, he... A huge piece of this is geography, which is that um, the first half of his life, or not quite the first half, but until roughly around the age 40, he had lived in North Africa and had been accorded a position of extraordinary status and prestige by the Jews with whom he lived. And then the relocation, forcible relocation to the north it's very difficult for him. He's separated from his family for a considerable amount of time. The Jew, the Portuguese Jews of Amsterdam, we know this from their record books, ransom his wife and his children um, and, and, and bring them to him to Amsterdam. There's a huge amount of, of dislocation. There's a huge amount of economic uncertainty. And at the same time, one also has to think about what it meant to come from places like Wahran and Tlemcen in the middle of the 17th century and to come to Amsterdam, which is one of the largest cities in Europe, 150,000 people. There are books there that he cannot um, that he cannot have seen had he, when he was in Wahran and Tlemcen. And there is a wealth that he did not know about or that he knew about but did, had not experienced firsthand. And these are some of the things that I, I tried to reconstruct as I was um, working on him. Okay, all of those variables, all of those factors would certainly have an impact on his point of view and his ability uh, to relate to what was going on. Uh, It seems, though, and you'll tell me if I'm oversimplifying, that the, the fundamental issue for him is the question of truth, whether truth is determined, and in a Jewish context, by internal or external references, that is, prophecy or personal, mystical, spiritual experience on the one hand, and texts or men with authority and expertise uh, on the other hand. 
I, I um I don't know how to answer that question. I think part of the issue is is that when I was working on the issue of prophecy, one of the things that emerged for me was that he works very very hard to keep the possibility of prophecy in the middle of the 17th century alive, and at the same time to say that Nathan of Gaza is not an actual prophet. And that is a position that I have very difficult, I have had a very difficult time wrapping my head around, which is he doesn't, the same way that he doesn't say, I don't believe in the Messiah, I don't believe in the Messianic idea, I want to throw the Messianic idea out. He doesn't say, I don't believe in prophecy at all. Not at all. He's willing to protect the idea of prophecy. He simply wants to say that Nathan of Gaza is not a prophet. Moreover, he wants to separate the importance of prophecy from the relationship to the messianic idea. And this he uses text to, um, to, 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 to make this kind of argument. And there is a way, I think, in which the world um, that he was experienced was that he was experiencing in the middle of the 1660s was absolutely terrifying to him. Jews are dancing in the street. Um, they're creating a public nuisance. He's very concerned about war and about plague. And he has no idea what to do. And so what he does is he does what he has been trained to do, which is to read. And he reads very, very carefully. And he reads the sources that he knows inside out, which is Maimonides, um, both the Guide of the Perplexed and the Code of Law. He reads the Zohar. He reads the Responsa of Solomon ibn Adret. He reads Sefer Hasidim. And these are books that don't really sit so normal, so so easily next to one another on the, the imaginary bookshelf. But he uses them to, to construct a tradition of skepticism, of wait and see. And that, I think, is something that is incredibly innovative. And that is where I think the conservative and the radical um, come it, come come to the fore, because in doing something that he thinks is simply what he has been trained to do, which is to read and to read carefully, he constructs an entire textual tradition that exists only in his mind. So why was uh, Sasportas compared with the philosopher Thomas Hobbes? Who made that comparison, Renee? <laughs> Look, I think um, I, I I made that comparison to to um, to 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 come out to 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 suggest a certain kind of initial skepticism and initial doubt. There is one radical difference between Hobbes and and Sasportas. Hobbes is a system builder. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Hobbes built a new system for how one should think about the state. And historians have reconstructed this system in all of its glorious detail. We live in a great age of Hobbes scholarship, and we know a lot more about Hobbes now than um, whoever this we is, <laughs> scholars, let's say. Um, we know a lot more about Hobbes now than, than, than we did in the middle of the 20th century. So Sportus was not a system builder. He was fundamentally reactionary, not necessarily in the political sense of the term, but in the sense of he was reactive in the literal sense of the terms. He wrote letters to people mm-hmm. um, about particular events. And I think he wrote because he, he, he thought this way, he functioned this way because he thought the system had already been built. It was a system of Mosaic law as interpreted by the rabbis, primarily Maimonides. And he, his job was to interpret that. He did not see himself as building something anew, and there I think is 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 a radical difference between him and let's say someone like Thomas Hobbes. He saw himself as working within the tradition, not as someone who was reconstru- um, constructing a new system. Okay, uh, in 
It, then let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, long term impacts the sport has had. Tell us about the uh, controversy between uh, Jacob Emden and Jonathan Ipschitz. It's a really good question. So, Sesportas, um, when he dies in 1698, um, he has actually become the chief rabbi of the Portuguese Jews for about four years in his 80s. It's, it's really amazing. It's, you basically watch someone who was either unemployed or underemployed for half a century, then finally get the job and very, very, very late in life. Um, and after he dies, um, people deliver really glorious eulogies of him, and no one mentions him as a controversialist in their eulogies, which I think goes um, some distance to showing that for him the controversies were central, but not for the people around him when they were thinking about him after he died. And then he, one of his sons um, finances the publication of his book uh, of responsa called Ohel Yaakov. And at the very end of the book, he... Um, includes an appendix, which is an abbreviated chronicle of Sabatianism, Kitsur Tzitzat Novel Tzvi. Now, the Portuguese Jews of Amsterdam are so appalled by the presence of this appendix because it depicted their ancestors as believers in Shabtai Tzvi that almost every single copy, they confiscate and rip out the appendix and tear them out. So much so that uh, that that book appears in 1737. About 15 years later, Jacob Emden, who is one of the great rabbinic intellectuals of the middle of the 18th century, um, is involved in a controversy about the Ashkenazi rabbinate of Hamburg-Altena-Wandsbeck. And the rabbi of the, the Ashkenazi Jews of Hamburg-Altena-Wandsbeck is uh, rabbinic phenom, a major intellectual figure by the name of Jonathan Ibishitz. And Emdin alleges that Ibishitz has distributed amulets to women who are trying to conceive children that contain um, references to Shabtai Tzvi as the Messiah. And it's important to understand that this controversy takes over the rabbinate of Europe for a very long time. Um, it starts in 1752. Um, and it continues unabated until Ibishitz's death, Ibishitz's death in 1764. And there is a way in which it kind of never ends, in the sense that um, historians continue to fight about it. Um, uh, um, Hasidim and Maskilim fight about it in the 19th century, as Shmuel Versus showed in a wonderful article. And Emdin, though, is forcibly exiled from the Jews, from the Ashkenazi Jews of Hamburg, Alten of Wandsbeck, and goes to, ends up in Amsterdam. And Empton finds himself in Amsterdam, and someone gives him a copy of the appendix to Ohel Yaakov, the Kitsur Tzitzat Novel Tzvi. And Emden lights up and says, oh my goodness, this is a man who was experiencing some of the same things that I experienced. He has the same name as I do. We're in the same place. And Emden returns to Altona, where he has a printing press in his basement, basically, and reprints the Kitsur Tzitzat Novel Tzvi, with his own marginal annotations and with an introduction. And it's through that that Emden fashions this image of Sasportas as a heresy hunter, someone who had gone after the Sabatians. Now, that image, I think, is very appropriate to Emden himself. I don't think it actually works so much for Sasportas, because I think Sasportas was more of a dissident than a heresy hunter. But it is through Emden's intellectual efforts that Jews are able to read Sasportas 
because it's Emden's uh, edition of the Kitsur Tzitzat Novel Tzvi that Jewish intellectuals read over the course of the next um, century and a half before it gets um, reprinted in its um, and re-edited in the middle of the 20th century. And uh, to do you think of the uh, experience of the rise of uh, Hasidism and the extreme negative reaction of Mitnagdim to have renewed the controversy that is between personal spiritual experience versus rationalism and text? There is a way, but Renee, I got to say, I'm out of my depth here, um, and which is to say that I don't know enough about um, Hasidim and Nagdim, and I know only what my colleagues um, write about it, and I read their work with great admiration. I don't think Sasportis plays a major role there. I think he he plays a sort of ancillary role in a novella by the Hebrew writer um, Shai Agnon, um, a, an extraordinary um, text called Hanidach. Um, or the vanquished, it's not clear how one should translate the term anidach, where um, a chassid, where the the child of a misnagid family um, becomes a chassid. And then towards the very end of the novella, um, as he's quite ill, he is recovering by reading historical works. And one of the historical works that he recovers reading is Sasportas, and he sort of migrates from his chassidism back to his misnagidism. Um, and so there, I think you see Sasportas and Sasportas' image um, having some kind of role. But in terms of the actual fights um, in the early 19th century, I don't know how much Sasportas is um, in the mix there. And what about uh, the, the uh, issue of the extreme anti-Zionism today of the Satmar Hasidic sect? Did the ideas that Sasportas promote uh, have any influence on that? That's a very um, um, important question. So uh, I we have to step back for a little bit before we get to um, the early 21st century. I think one has to get to, one has to think about, Emden's edition of Sasportas circulated for quite some time, but scholars were aware, um, Avraham Epstein and Arthur Zechariah Schwartz, that Sasportas' manuscripts remained unedited and that there was a lot more material of his Sasportas' polemic about um, Shabtai Tzvi. And Arthur Zechariah Schwartz, who was um, a librarian in Vienna and a monumental scholar, was working on an edition of Sasportas' chronicle, Tzitzat Novel Tzvi, um, in the 1930s. And he's forced to believe, he's forced to flee Vienna and he goes to Jerusalem and dies almost immediately upon um, arriving in Mandate Palestine. His widow gives the material that he's working on to a scholar at the Hebrew University by the name of Gershom Sholem and asks him to edit the material and to produce it into print. Gershom Sholem works with one of his students, Isaiah Tishby, and finances and um, uh, oversees the creation of a new edition of Sasportas' Chronicle, um, uh, an edition that Tishbi eventually published with um, Mossad Bialik in 1954. Now, Hmm. it's important to realize that this is one of the greatest scholarly editions of a rabbinic text um, that um, was was ever produced. And any work that um, anyone is able to do on Sasportas is enabled by Sholem's work and by Tishbi's work. Um, Roughly five years later, 
Joel Teitelbaum, who's born in the Habsburg Empire in 1887 and dies in the United States in the late 1970s, starts to read Sasportas. He may have been reading him beforehand, but he at least starts to write about Sasportas in a book called Vayol Moshe. Vayol Moshe is a rabbinic work that is, to, at least to my mind, sui generis, um, meaning it has elements of a responsa, it also has elements of a polemic, it also has elements of um, uh, uh, sort of an ordinance. It's written in rabbinic Hebrew. And Teitelbaum makes an argument that he sees himself as um, a, a, a critic of the prevailing opinion of his day. And he sees the prevailing of opinion of his day as Zionism amongst um, Jews, and that um, he makes an analogy uh, roughly between the same way that um, most Jews today are Zionists um, and I am an anti-Zionist. Most Jews in Sasportas' time were Sabatians and Sasportas was an anti-Sabatian. So he, he traces, he sees Sasportas as a critical link in um, his... Um, in his anti-Zionism. And I think Teitelbaum relates the notion of Zionism to the issue of Messianism. Um, and this is where Sasportas plays such a fundamental role for Teitelbaum's worldview. So that's circa 1959. I don't know how much Sasportas is read after that, um, if that makes sense. Um, I found the, the, the title bounds reading of Sasportas by accident, um, and then I subsequently realized that other scholars had noticed it um, and was able to build upon their work. Okay. Then, the, then uh, it, it, you would say it's not the case that Sasportas' ideas directly, uh, even if people didn't read his book, but his ideas may have still influenced the movement. But um, I don't know that I would say that. Let me put mm-hmm. it this way. I think that um, the relationship between Zionism and Messianism is um, extremely complicated. I would um, I, 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 I have learned enormous amounts on the relationship between Zionism and Messianism from um, the works of uh, my, my teacher, Amnon Raz Krakotskin, who has written with um, terrifying eloquence on the relationship between Zionism and Messianism and the relationship between Christianity and Zionism. And I think some of Sasportas' ideas are very, very crucial there. Um, and I think that Teitelbaum saw with astonishing clarity certain phenomenological parallels between Zionism and Messianism and, and wrote with extraordinary eloquence about them. Well, Messianism continues to arise from time to time, actually in the world in general, but certainly in various parts of the Jewish community as well. How is one to know whether or not someone is truly the Messiah? It's a really good question, Renee, Um, and I have absolutely no idea. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I I, I don't know, and um, I think that um, uh, in in that respect... um, uh, I, um, I, I mean, I think we, 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 we turned, one of the things I was trying to show in, in, in this book about Sasportas is to take the ideas both of the Zion, the, sorry, to take the ideas of both the Sabatians and, um, Sasportas very, very seriously and not to, um, 
look at them with a, um, a, a sort of kind of derisive, um, oh, it's so obvious um, that how it's going to turn out. Um, I think we don't know what is going to happen. And I think that um, I think it's um, it's pretty clear that the, the Messiah has been coming for a very long time and that the end of the world has been has been around the corner for a very, very long time. And that um, apocalyptic thinking is, has been a, a part of the way certain people process the world for a very, very long time. And I think that um, I'm, I'm very wary of drawing sort of specific lessons um, from, uh, from a case like Sasportas to um, the, the particular time and place in which we live right now. Well, the other issue that Sasportas was concerned about that uh, is also very contemporary is the role of uh, the rabbi scholar versus the people who pay the bills uh, within the Jewish community. Um, how do you see that working out over the past, uh, let's say, two centuries? Not so well. Um <laughs> <laughs> look, I, I, I'm with you. Look, I don't. I, I'm. I'm. Uh, this is a podcast, so I want to be somewhat um, diplomatic in what I have to say. I it, look. I. It's not clear to me that um, the Ravenet has been able to um, survive um, the last two centuries. Um, I think it's pretty clear that what a rabbi is um, has changed quite dramatically in the course of the last two centuries. And I think that part of this has to do with what I was trying to say earlier about this notion of the use of the word community. Um, And that in Susportis' time, um, there is no choice, so to speak. Um, The first Jew who has a choice and chooses to leave is Susportis' contemporary Spinoza. Um, but he's an outlier, right? Um, not until one has political emancipation in the 18th century and uh, political emancipation, as we know, as historians have taught us, is a very long, torturous process that occurs in fits and starts for a century and a half. Um, does one get to the point where um, uh, one has some kind of choice, depending who the one is and depending on, on where it, um, and a whole bunch of other variables? Um it's not clear to me what um, the role of the rabbi is in the the last two centuries, and um, and I, in that in that respect, I see a radical disjuncture between Sasportas and um, um, some of the, the the figures who who succeed him. Well, we'll have to stay tuned and see how that develops. <laughs> it's been a delight talking with you, Yaakov. It's uh, you've been very generous with your time and your knowledge. Uh, but before you go, tell us what you're working on now. Uh, it's been a wonderful, to, wonderful to be here. Um, and I'm really grateful to you for the opportunity to talk about Sasportas. And I'm really grateful for the care with which you read um, the book. It's it's amazing to have readers at all in this day and age and readers who, who, who read for longer than 140 characters or 280 characters. So Renee, I'm very grateful for the time you took to um, read the book I wrote on Sasportas. Um, what am I working on now? I'm working on um, a bunch of separate projects. Um, one of them is I have another life as a literary translator, and I'm working on a literary translation of a Hebrew novel called The Days of Tziklag by Essie Har, and that I'm doing with my teacher, um, Professor Nicholas Delange of the University of Cambridge, and we're about halfway through our translation of Izhar's um, Days of Tziklag. 
many years ago, at this point, about 10 years ago, we translated a short novella by him, a book called Chirbet Chiza. And so we now hope to bring um, out a um, uh, his major novel, which appeared in two volumes in the late 1950s. And then I'm working on the early stages of... Uh, what I hope will be a longer project on the rabbinic reactionary in the Sephardic diaspora in the in the early modern period. And here I want to take some of the things that I learned about Sasportas um, and look at how they um, manifest themselves in a whole bunch of other figures, some um, who are relatively unknown, a figure by the name of Moshe Hajiz, who was studied with glorious detail by um, Professor Ali Shava Karlbach, a figure by the name of Chizkia da Silva, who has yet to sort of really receive any scholarly attention, a figure by the name of Chaim Yosef David Azulai, um, and a bunch of other figures, and to show how in the early modern period one has this new Sephardic rabbi who's also old, new old type of figure who is um, excluded from social power, very mobile, has a new relationship to um, the printed word, but also writes in new genres. And we'll see what comes of it. But that's where I am at the moment. Well, that sounds like a great project. I'll be interested to read it when it comes out. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being on the show today. And thanks to Thank you for having me. And thanks to Bela Pasikov, our researcher. 